better now that I have inhaled all of these corticosteroids into my nose. Uh-oh, what's wrong? Allergies. Now, oh, is this like big allergy time in, in Alabama? I don't know yeah. like what seasons are like there. The ragweed's kicking my ass. So ah. I spent half of my morning laying on the couch that you see behind me trying to get up and with Shane, because since it's COVID, my door's always closed. It's not like people in the past would see, oh, doors closed, leave them alone. Like they come by, knock and, and pop in. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, are you feeling okay? And I'm like, embarrassingly uh, like, yeah, I just I have a couch and I'm making use of it, of course. <laughs> I'm a little but so I went out, Loretta was cued into using Nasacort and Afrin and Flonase, not just one, but she's like, the Nasacort works better, but if you added on to the Flonase, it actually helps. And I've been wow. so tired. Careful with the Afrin. You're only supposed to use that for three days. Three days max use on Afrin, because otherwise you become dependent on it to breathe. And you don't want that. <laughs> Are you saying I should have read the directions before I snorkel? You could have. I mean, as a person who gets a sinus infection every year and relies on Afrin to function for three days out of that, you know, sinus infection, I am very familiar <laughs> with those instructions. I've never used it before. I've had the pleasant experience of the menthol freshness and then followed by an intense burning. It is liquid nasal rotorooter is basically what it is. <laughs> it clears you out and it clears you out good, but only three days. Otherwise, like you won't be able to breathe without it and don't put yourself in that position. Anyway, we should get going on uh, talking about today's actual show, which I don't think we're going to have a good segue from allergies to our interviewee and are, her research. Are, aren't we talking to a nose anthropologist today? Sadly, no. We should totally get Scott Maddox on though. He could No, talk but we are talking to someone who studies like old people walking and I'm an old person who walks. Who always yeah. gets injuries. Maybe she'll have some advice for you. I know. In fact, I'm supposed to call <laughs> the doctor today to get more medication. But I was thinking about all the old people trying to stand in line to vote today when I was reading this article. Ah. And all their, their, their canes and, and little chairs and stuff that they had to sit on in line to keep themselves going. The and what chairs. an effort that must have been. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I mean, so today, since we haven't actually said it yet, uh, we're interviewing Catherine Sayer, who is at the University of Southern California working with Dr. Dave Reichlin. And we had Dave on the show, oh, I don't know, a few weeks ago at this point. And he's like, you should totally have my grad student on. And I'm like, all right, that sounds great. And then she recently had a paper come out. She looks at aging and physical as well as cognitive decline with age in hunter-gatherer and pastoralist populations, particularly in Africa, basically non-Westernized populations, because that's like the only place people have studied aging. This paper has Ivy Pike on it, who mm -hmm. is an HPA person who, I don't know if you know her all that well, but she was one of the original people that advised me to get the writing group together by which we met. So <gasps> she's somebody I've always wanted to get on the show and we, we totally have it. I'm sorry. 
and Brian Woods on here and we haven't talked mm-hmm. to him, but we tried. We totally tried, and, although it was for a sad reason, but still. Yeah, it was. But I mean, basically what I'm saying is what a cool team. I can't wait to hear about it. Katie, welcome to the show. It's really lovely to meet you. Thank you. It's good to meet both of you. So the way we usually start <laughs> these things is to find out where you're from, how you got into anthropology, basically what goes into the making of you. So tell us about yourself. Yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I went to UT Austin as an undergrad. And my senior year of high school, I read Tracy Kidder's Mountains Beyond Mountains about Paul Farmer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a doctor. And then I'm going to major in the humanities in college because then I'll be a well-rounded doctor. And anthropology just seemed really interesting to me. I think I associated it with cultural anthropology mostly. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You just get to go see how other people live their lives. Like that Hmm. seems great. I want to do that. But then I got to college and I was like, I don't want to do the the med school thing. So that book was the common book experience when I was in grad school that everybody read, which is how I read it. How did you, you said you read that in high school? Yeah. What introduced you to that book? I haven't any idea. (laughs) Fell out of the sky. I believe that was a gateway book for me, but it was in college (laughs) anthropology as well. So discovering it in high school is pretty good. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) You were well-read as a high schooler. That's not a problem. There we go. There we go. (laughs) But then, right. So then I started taking anthropology classes and um, I took Chris Kirk's intro to physical anthropology. This was still physical anthropology then. And he just really made me more interested in the the bio side of it than the cultural side. So Chris Kirk and then all of the TAs who were all grad students were just really, really great. I was like, man, there's so many gaps in the literature. Like I thought we knew everything, everything was sort of figured <laughs> out and that's obviously not the case, but it was just, it was really compelling to me. Like there's, there's obviously still stuff to research and to learn and I could get to go do that. That's really cool. And someday make a living at it. Someday we hope. We'll see, that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> we say as we swear on our podcast, the people who have been fortunate <laughs> enough to hold jobs. Um, and so you got super interested in bioanth in college, which yay, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us were influenced by our undergrad advisors and professors. So it's always nice giving them a shout out. And then you decided to go to grad school. And so what led you to USC <laughs> and Dave Franklin? When I got interested in bioanth. At UT, I volunteered with a bunch of different labs with John Kappelman and Liza Mm. Shapiro, who was Dave's advisor. And so when I decided to do grad school, I, you know, made a list of everyone that I was interested in. And I was sort of broadly interested in human locomotion and bipedalism and stuff kind of vaguely, but Dave was on my list. And so when I showed, you know, Liza, the list that includes Dave Reichlin, she's like, oh yeah, he's really great. So that was, (laughs) he got excellently promoted by UT. So I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to our interview with Dave Reichlin literally a couple of weeks ago, but Dave and I go back a bit because he's good friends with my PhD advisor, Herman Ponser. And uh, also on your paper. He's also on my paper. Yeah. Herman is also great. Um, And so, yeah, yeah. We've been talking about like all these multiple connections that have been going on. So it's always fun to make those a bit more solid, I guess. You went in with this whole thing. I mean, yeah, Dave Reichlin was, uh, I 
I shouldn't say was, is, but that hasn't been the focus as much, but biomechanics. And that's how I was introduced to Dave as well. Mm-hmm. But Dave is, has recently moved into this whole cognitive and physical decline with aging. And it seems you have gone along that track too. Uh, and so we're wondering, you know, what's the story behind your interest in aging and in particular among non-Western populations? So I spent a year teaching English in China after I graduated UT because I was thinking that grad school was really great, but I just needed to not be in school. Although going to teach English at a school is not really there's the difference like (laughs) versus you know being the student. It's a world of difference. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. So I was teaching English in a sort of rural area of China, and I um, just noticed that I saw older people really regularly there. And like a lot of the other teachers at the college where I was teaching had parents living with them in the apartments provided by the college. And all the people, if they, if they wanted to, families could have a little like farming plot near the college. And so most of the time when I saw older people in China, it was because they were working on their farming plot by the school or they were doing group tai chi in the morning or you know they were just so active all the time and i was really struck by that because i'm just not used to seeing older people in at least in my experience growing up it was usually in the context of you know nursing homes or the church or something so there just there seemed to be such a a strong relationship in my experience in china between seeing people who were really active and seeing really energetic older adults who just seemed less frail i guess than the common picture of being old in the USA. So then when I was figuring out grad school, I thought Dave's work was really cool because it had to do with physical activity and sort of the energetics of physical activity and how that can impact your body throughout life. So I went into grad school wanting to work with people who were just more active and subsistence level populations are a really great place to look for that because they oftentimes have really physically active lifestyles as a rule, not as, you know, a leisure time activity they participate in. And so they're just really unique populations to work with because everyone from the kids to the teens to the adults and the older adults are all part of this lifestyle that requires some amount of being active throughout life. So I wanted to look into that to see how people experience moving through the lifespan in different ways than perhaps I might in the U.S. because of my lifestyle. So tell us a little bit about how you went about that. So my first year in grad school, I went to Kenya with Ivy Pike, and she works with a few pastoralist populations there. So I did master's data collection with the Pakot and the Turkana pastoralists, and then Dave had been with Brian Wood and Herman Ponzer to Tanzania to work with the Hadza. So a few summers after that, I went to go work with the Hadza, who were foragers. So I had a chance to look at physical activity and sort of different metrics of physical function in two different populations who were living in really close proximity, relatively speaking, but had really different lifestyles. Yeah. How'd you go about Let's hold uh, on. Let me let me first like actually formally introduce the paper that we're actually 
referring to oh. but not saying it like explicitly the philosophical transactions uh is the journal and the uh the title is aging and physical function in east african foragers and pastoralists so first congrats on like an awesome paper in a big name journal being at the stage Thank you're you. at in, in grad school that's really really fantastic and so yeah as you. as you just said you you've been working with folks the hadza and the uh, poco and yeah. So how did you actually assess the presence of physical decline and measure physical activity? So I used accelerometers to measure physical activity. That was really the bulk of my master's was just looking at physical activity levels. And accelerometers are sort of like glorified pedometers. They measure the overall movement of whatever limb you're wearing them on. So they're really great because they're non-invasive and they don't require my interpretation of what people are doing mm. in terms of how active they are. It, someone can wear an accelerometer and then go live while not interacting with me. And I like that aspect of them. And then for the physical function aspects, I really came up with that idea when I was reading about a lot of the literature on frailty. Because frailty is, there are a lot of different ways that people conceptualize of it, but one of the ways that people talk about it is using the freed frailty phenotype. So if you have three or more of a set of five characteristics, you're considered frail. Hmm. And those include self-reported exhaustion and unintentional weight loss and low levels of activity, decline in strength and slow gait speed. Hmm. So frailty seemed really cool to me as a way to assess physical function in different populations because it's sort of a broad, all-encompassing concept. The first two aspects of this frailty phenotype, self-reported exhaustion and weight loss unintentionally are kind of culturally loaded. So yeah, I didn't want to look at those at all. And I didn't want to decide based on my assessment is someone frail or not. They just seemed like a really good framework for looking at people in a different population from my own, how they, how broadly people of all ages perform on those tests relative to other people in the population. So I use the accelerometers to look at physical activity level because low levels of activity are one of the things associated with being frail. And then I had people do a grip strength test. So just squeezing a hand dynamometer as hard as you can. And it's supposed to be for muscle strength. And then I had everyone do a two minute walk test, which is probably the most fun to watch because it seems like such a ridiculous thing to ask people <laughs> to do. So I set up two rocks, cones, whatever. It's like a 25 foot pathway. And then people had to walk as briskly as possible just around those two markers for two minutes. And then the test is measuring how far you go. Did you have to yell at people to like keep them walking? Like, did anyone try to cheat and run it? Just times, yeah, but there's usually, well, so the, the, in that particular case, so for both the grip strength and the walking test, it's, it's really a more effective test when you do it with a group of people who are all watching you, like other, other peers, other the people. Social networking are... and peer pressure to perform. That's a right. whole other study. <laughs> How it's does true. Peer pressure... It's true. There's so much potential. <laughs> How does peer pressure like allow you to avoid cognitive and physical decline. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be made fun of, so I'm going to keep walking. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. If people started to run instead of just walk quickly, they got, you know, shut down. And if they were walking slower than other people thought they should be walking, they got 
yelled at for being too slow. They were motivated to, to keep going. But if they could run, doesn't that automatically mean they're probably not too frail? Yes. You gotta does. standardize the measures, Chris. How are you supposed to compare? I can well, see can you run. like stop the test. I can see you, you like laying on the ground and making sure that there's always one foot touching the like in contact with the ground, that there's right, no, right, like, no vaulting stage, especially being a Reichland student. Right, right. Right. So what did you find and how does it compare to say physical decline in the US? The CDC and the World Health Organization recommend that you engage in 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And that's based on percentage of your heart rate. That's like 30 minutes a day for most days of the week. And the Hadza and the Pakat, you know, there is a decline with age or the older people spend less time in MVPA than the younger individuals. But the average of people 60 and older was like 100 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity, which is well above this 150 minutes per week that mm, you're like supposed to professor. engage in. Right. right. So overall, really high levels of activity, even though the older people had lower activity levels. Hmm. And then grip strength, the Hadza participants, both men and women had a really clear grip strength pattern that looks a lot like what we see in the US and in other countries. So you see a, an increase in grip strength to a peak around your 20s and 30s. And then there's sort of a decline and then perhaps an increasing decline over the age of 60. But we had a pretty limited sample of people over 60, importantly. So the Hadza men and women have this something that looks very similar to what we see in the United States. And that's pretty similar to what a lot of other studies with subsistence populations show is that grip strength is sort of consistently this thing that looks like, yep, we have this increase until your peak in your young adulthood. And then you see a decline after that, which is interesting that that aspect of physical function might just be more biologically determined, even, even with other lifestyle elements. Uh, the surprising thing though, is that the Pakat male participants had really high grip strength in their 40s. Their peak wasn't in their 20s or 30s. Hmm. It was all the way in their 40s. And then it declined afterward, which was really odd. So that would suggest that they're doing something that really maintains their muscle mass, you know, into mid-adulthood. But yeah, I would love to get back out there and do more with them to see why on earth that might be. Yeah. So when we spoke with Dave, he was telling us a lot about cognitive decline and rather than the physical decline and that you can actually link the two together and prevent both by doing exercise. And so we were wondering, are you going to be assessing cognitive decline at all within these populations and in kind of your future work? And where's that going? Yeah, I, so I did cognitive function with both those populations when I was out there and I haven't published it yet, although that's something I'm currently working on. I mean, exactly like what Dave was saying, it's, mm -hmm. it's really all connected, especially if you look at when you get older, how physically active you are is really predictive of whether or not or when you will develop both dementia and a disability. So if you are more active, you are less likely to become physically or cognitively disabled. They're so very well related. And I'm we're all sitting down right now having this discussion. And I'm, oh, that's you know. great. I am using my squeezy elephant to make sure that in my 40s, my grip strength is not declining. Fine. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's great. I wish I had. I have a, a squeezy a galaxy toy. ball. 
Uh, and so, but that also like brings me back, like talking about the peer pressure to like physically perform. You got to wonder about the role of social networks as well in cognitive decline, if not just, you know, physical activity is if you have more people around you in your life that you're constantly interacting with, I wonder how that impacts cognitive decline as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, all the all the literature about lifestyle and aging outcomes kind of generally centers around three different elements of lifestyles being really important for shaping how you grow older, both physically and cognitively, because of course they are so linked together. And that's physical activity levels, so exercise, diet, and then social relationships. So especially when you get older, if you have more and stronger social relationships, that's also supposed to predict healthier aging as well. I think feeling like you're part of a community, certainly I would hope when I'm older to feel like an integral part of my community. And I think it's growing up in Texas, the fact that I mostly saw older adults in nursing homes or in very limited social settings is disappointing to me. And I I would love to see more age groups interacting more regularly. Like that seems like a great way to maintain cognition later. (laughs) I remember my grandmother and grandfather, and this is when they were when I was much younger, like a child, but you know, they were still elderly adults. They would have their Mm -hmm. coffee club where they would start the mornings by walking laps in the mall together with other older couples. And then afterwards they would all go to McDonald's for their senior coffees together. Uh, And I just think about that, but that's the same thing. Like, it's great that they had a support group to do that, but there wasn't intergenerational reliance or interaction at all. It was the old folks doing the the maulers or the whatever you want to call them, walking the laps in the mall and getting their senior coffee. Right, right. But yeah, is it the Netherlands that has done this where they've like started housing college students with older folks? I believe it's the Netherlands. Oh, that's great. As like improving the social network for older folks in the community and creating that intergenerational thing. Anyway, I've talked too much. (laughs) No, no, I I think I'm sort of biased towards thinking that intergenerational interactions would be really great because I, especially in our current social political environment, I really want when I'm older to be open-minded to the ideas and opinions of, of younger people. And I don't really see a way to do that without regularly interacting with younger people. So I think that and then my time in China, seeing older adults and younger adults just really commonly interacting make me think that that would be great. But I took a really great gerontology class at University of Arizona. We did a whole section on the social aspects of aging and looked at different ways that people decide to live, like housing situations as alternatives to nursing homes. And people just have such creative ways to be older and independent and feel like you're a part of a community without living in a nursing home. And I think one of my favorites was it was, so there was a nursing home, but then they had a preschool that was also as a part of that. So it was a daycare and the older adults there took care of the the preschoolers. And that just seemed so, so cool to me that you would do that. Like, of course I would trust yeah. my grandmother to take care of younger children. Yeah, of course. I mean, it makes perfect sense from a evolutionary perspective, grandmother hypothesis, but working it into our social fabric outside of extended family networks seems to be the stopping point in the U.S. would be my, my observation. So what's mm-hmm. given these aspirations and what's next for you? Well, I am in the midst of grant writing. So Hopefully, I'm supposed to be in Tanzania right now doing dissertation data collection, but we have a pandemic 
happening. So that is not how, I don't know if you've heard about this COVID thing. We don't have a pandemic. No. <laughs> In my office, but yes, we do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I'm grant writing and sort of reassured by still being excited about my dissertation project while grant writing. Like that seems like a, a good sign. So I don't know if it will happen because it's it involves going to Tanzania, but that project would be looking more in depth at both physical and cognitive functions. So doing more of those cognitive tests, but with more people among the Hadza and mm-hmm. certainly more older adults, especially, and, and looking at how Hadza who are still full-time foragers, which is actually a minority of the Hadza, but mm-hmm. the ones that we study the most because they're foragers and that's really cool. But I really want to look at the Hadza who forage and then the Hadza who in whatever way are more market integrated and look at how their activity levels and their physical and cognitive function compare. Very cool. Very cool. And yeah, so I'm excited. You should be. That's really, really cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's also really important. I mean, we've got the boomers aging out now. And so the stuff that you learn could be hugely impactful for everyday life. So I think that's great. Right. Great. Right. So how do you maintain work-life integration? What sort of fun things do you do or weird facts about yourself that you enjoy sharing? <laughs> yes. The, the attempt at a work-life integration. So uh, my husband is not in academia, actually, and that helps a lot for me to maintain any kind of work life, anything. I can vouch for so that he... as my husband is also not in academia. Awesome. It's huge. Yes, <laughs> yeah. He does bikes. He works on bicycles and builds and fixes bikes. And so we, we just recently moved in Los Angeles from living closer to USC and downtown to living closer to the beach, which is great. And that's thanks to Dave constantly telling me to do that and he was right it is great but there's you know there's this long beach path up and down the coast and so we spend a lot of time biking and um lovely yeah yeah he knows how to fix bikes and I don't and so I've been learning when things fall apart how bikes work and it's been this really lovely shift from anything related to academia is like taking apart bicycle parts and trying to put them back together it's fun yeah, that's super handy. My wife asked me to blow up the tire on her bike so she could go for a ride the other day. And I discovered we have like six bikes with one working tire among them. No. <laughs> just just, so, just yeah. wire all the bikes together into like this giant bike centipede. It'll be fine. When people get these fancy bikes and then they, they leave or whatever, they leave them mm-hmm. on the rack. University takes them and then they auction them off. And I'm like, a bike for $10? Why, yes, I want that. So I get a collection of bikes, but they've all sat outside and got rusty. And they all need a little bit of repair. And I'm thinking, I'm handy enough to do this. Turns out I'm not. You know, you could just preempt the the university people and go clip a bike on your own before they come around. Save yourself the 10 bucks. Make sure it's in good working condition, though. That's really going to be important. (laughs) That would just get me arrested. But thanks for that advice, (laughs) co-host. Because I want to be a host on my own now. (laughs) like it. Plotting how to get Chris arrested so I can take over the show for my nefarious purposes. Anyway, Katie. just have you come in from jail. That'll be really interesting. Oh, my goodness. You could podcast from jail. jail? What a good intro that would be. It'd be so much fun. It would be. Move the microphone closer to the cell, please. Anyway, Katie, it has been an absolute delight talking with you. Congrats on all the success you've had. And I'm sure you're going to see great things from you in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was fun. Bye.